what's important is that in order to integrate renewable energy generation, energy storage is vital. And that's what we are bringing. We are bringing this storage in order to help in a cost-effective way renewable energy generation. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about the energy storage potential of electric vehicles. Way back in episode 12, we talked about grid-scale battery technology, essentially filling up a cargo container full of lithium-ion batteries and using them to help regulate the supply and demand of our electric grid, which is becoming ever more complex. Another technology, which we hinted at in the subsequent episode, is called vehicle-to-grid, using the aggregate battery storage potential of all electric vehicles plugged in at a given moment to help power and regulate the grid. Think about it. One grid-scale battery could hold about 10 megawatt-hours of power. Some of the most sophisticated electric vehicles today have between between 50 and 100 kilowatt hour capacities. So about 150 vehicles could do the same job. A quick refresher to those who were asking why electric storage is even necessary. It's not critical. Utilities have been supplying electricity on demand since the days of Edison. As demand increases, more power plants flip on the switch. It's not the most efficient system because most of these facilities are only running for a short amount of your day. Like when you come home, turn on the TV and run a load of clothes in the dryer. This model of demand is often called the duck curve. If there was a way to store electricity and draw energy from sources rather than a power plant, then we could achieve greater efficiency in the overall electric system. This would also make utilities happy. We aren't using less energy. Those stored solutions like car batteries are simply charging at less busy times of the day. Solutions like this theoretically average out the amount of energy supplied during the day, and a fewer number of power plants remain on a longer amount of the day. Vehicle to grid, or V2G, also plays nicely into the Uberization mindset we've recently become accustomed to in the era of ride sharing. Like those power plants, V2G allows car owners to make use of their car when they're not using it. According to Fortune.com, our cars sit idle 95% of the time. Many fleet vehicles, like school buses for instance, are also idle that much. But imagine if you had an electric vehicle sitting at home or work, charging, and during that time software was communicating with the grid, releasing small amounts of energy from your car battery to help steady electric supply. At first it reminded me of those parking lot attendants in Ferris Bueller. Okay, listen, uh, I want you to take extra special care of this vehicle. Okay? Hey, no problem. Great. Trust me, uh, you fellas have nothing to worry about. I'm a professional. Professional what? Don't worry, no one's taking an EV on a lakeside joyride. Instead, the car remains securely plugged in. Many of you may be wondering, what good is a system that draws electricity from your car if you don't have enough electricity to get home every night? Remember our discussion about range anxiety in our last EV episode? We don't want to freak out Cameron. Oh! Just like his buddy Ferris, today's guest has it down to a science. They've created a sophisticated algorithm to ensure your EV isn't resting on E when it's time to hit the road.
Our guest today is Dr. Gregory Pallon, Chairman and CEO of Nuvi Corporation, the only commercial vehicle-to-grid company as of today that has gone to market. Dr. Pallon is French, and his international staff have developed projects on both sides of the Atlantic for partners like Nissan and even a school bus initiative in California. I've been a big supporter of harnessing fleet vehicles, which we discussed at length. We also discussed what challenges and opportunities V2G could pose for the grid based on their experiences in places like Norway. When Dr. Pallon and I spoke back in December, Nuvi had also recently announced that it was getting its Series A financing, which is always a huge accomplishment for a young company. I spoke with him over the phone at his offices in San Diego. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gregory Pallon. We're here with Dr. Gregory Pallon, co-founder and CEO of Nuvi Corporation. And Gregory, I've been hearing about vehicle-to-grid technology for at least 10 years. As your website has indicated, the concept is much older than that. Why has vehicle-to-grid taken so long? And why do you feel Nuvi is the only company so far to pull it off? Sure. So on the first point, why is it taking so long? B2G is one of the piece for that. The automobile industry had to come together and reach the point that we have reached now, not only the penetration of electric vehicle today, but the targets also governments have had a strong influence, especially European governments, in setting up goals, in not allowing general combustion engine to be sold after a certain amount of time, like 2030 or 2040. Now, the issue of how are we going to be integrating all those electric vehicles, then V2G becomes the answer to that. And then the next part, why do you feel Nuvi is the only company so far to pull it off? I know that many other companies are working on V2G, but we are the first one to market today because I actually had the idea in 1996, so a long time ago, and I've been working on it all those years, all the way to 2009 when we started to participate in PGM market, which is a market that covers a big part of the East Coast of the United States. And so in 2009, we started electric vehicles participating in certain energy markets. And you know, between 2009 and now, we've been able to refine the algorithms that have been used to perform uh, V2G activities. You brought up earlier about all the different stakeholders, and it's bringing a lot of pieces together. A big part of this technology is the communications component. Who is communicating to whom? In terms of the system communication, the system is made of three key parts. One, there is a part that is interfacing with the grid in order to receive the information from the grid. And this could be at three levels. One is called grid-wide. This is usually where you have an independent system operator that is managing the grid and taking care of the transmission from the generation all the way to the distribution system. And here it's a question of balancing, making sure that you always have a balance between the demand and the supply. The next level is at the distribution level where you are reducing the voltage to reach houses and commercial sites. And then the third range is what you call behind the meter, helping consumers optimize the electric bill. And also something that is usually used on commercial sites today called demand charge, where your electric bill is not just about electricity, but also about the peak demand that you have. On the other hand, the system also connects to the cars and charging stations, depending on the technology of communication between the car and the charging stations. Today in Denmark, when we are using Nissan cars, we are actually communicating only with the charging station. And then we are relying on the protocol between the charging station and the vehicle in order to control the charge and discharge rate of that vehicle. There are other implementations where we are directly communicating with a car. And in between those two blocks, there is an optimization engine that basically looks at the needs from the grid 
and dispatches them onto the assets that are connected at any one time. And it does that on a second-by-second basis. It's very interesting that you mentioned three different levels of communication from transmission all the way to behind the meter. You have a diagram on your website that shows a communications path pointing to the transmission level. Is one method of communication vehicle to transmission, vehicle to distribution, vehicle to behind the meter? Is any one of those more preferable to the other one? In terms of infrastructure, you are always using the same infrastructure, which Mm -hmm. is your house is connected to the distribution system, and then when you have the voltage, then you connect with the transmission system. So in terms of the flow of energy, the grid is reciprocal. You can go one way or the other. You know, we've been used to get the energy going down, but there's nothing that stops you going up. The big difference is more from a market perspective. At the transmission level, there is something called frequency regulation, which is the instantaneous unbalance between the supply and the demand. It's a very fast-responding market. Usually, it's a few seconds to answer to a need from the grid. And this is great for batteries because batteries can respond very fast. I've always felt that when it comes to any new vehicle technology, electric vehicles, vehicle to grid, which is what you're doing, compressed natural gas, fleet vehicles would be the easiest way to implement. You get a lot of cars, in other words. How do you feel about that? And in particular, tell us a little bit about one of the programs you developed in that sector. Yeah, fleets are definitely the starting point for us across the board. In Denmark, where we have commercial operations running today, we are targeting fleets, some utility fleets, some city vehicles. In the U.S., school buses are extremely interesting because they are parked 95% of the time. So if you have a battery inside the school bus, that battery can have a use for the grid. Here in California, for example, we've got a lot of issue with something called the duck curve, which is basically during the day, all the solar panels on people's houses are generating a lot of energy. Energy. And the only way to absorb that energy is to reduce the generation from traditional power plants such as gas plants, coal plants. But then at 6 p.m., the sun goes down, people go back home, turn on their AC, and the demand in electricity increases very, very rapidly. School buses are a perfect fit to help smoothing out this duck curve, which could be very, very expensive in terms of absorbing the effects of that curve today. Absolutely. I've covered this topic in the past. Grid storage, the large cargo containers that are almost basically batteries that would sit at a substation. This is essentially doing that work, right? Yes. You mentioned a little bit earlier profit and also this idea of consuming electricity at different times of the day. How much profit, if that's the correct word, can you make from charging a vehicle at night, for instance, and then releasing it into the grid during peak demand? So what you're addressing here is what's called arbitrage, and you need to have something called time of use pricing, which means that you don't pay the same price for the energy depending on the time of the day. This is something that is being deployed now and needs to have a larger and larger spread between the lowest cost and the highest cost during the day. So I think in the UK today, you could maybe make about 600, 700 pounds a year by addressing this opportunity. The issue, though, is now you are really looking at something where you tend to take energy in the vehicles and then deplete it when the price is good. There are other types of markets or services that you can do to the grid that might be less demanding in terms of cycles that you are doing into the battery. And then you can combine those services. You can combine a service where you are doing frequency regulation on a continuous matter. And then at certain time of the day when your consumption is peaking and you want to make sure you are not going to be increasing your demand charge cost, 
then the vehicles could be flowing energy back so that you are reducing the overall consumption of the site. Those are the steps that are interesting to look into when you start to go from five vehicles, 10 vehicles, 20 vehicles, and 100 vehicles on the same site, your profile of consumption is going to be changing drastically. And so at some point, you can mix the vehicles and the building. But in many cases, if you look at peaks only, vehicles are going to be taking over the distribution grid. And without going too far away from your question, one interesting place to look into is nowhere. They have 30% of electric vehicle penetration today. Their distribution system is saturated by electric vehicles. And they are going to have to spend billions of dollars on improving their distribution system. They can afford it because Norway is a very rich country. But many Western European countries and North American countries, it will be very, very hard to afford such an improvement at the grid level. One quick follow-up. You mentioned time of use, pricing. An electric vehicle owner who would be participating in a vehicle-to-grid program doesn't necessarily have to live in an area where there's time of use pricing to make money off of this. Am I right? Absolutely. In Denmark today, when I talked about 1,400 euro per vehicle per year, there is no time of use price, a flat price. It's just that we use those assets to make them look like a virtual power plant and we participate into some markets that a single vehicle would not be able to participate into. But because we aggregate them and we make them look like a virtual power plant, we can address that market, extract some value that then we can distribute back onto the different vehicles that we use in order to participate in the market. Okay. In my last electric vehicle episode, we discussed range anxiety for a large part of that program and the fear of not having enough battery available for a trip. This technology, Nuvi's technology, is asking EV owners to use up some of their precious battery power. Now, how does your program ensure that electric vehicles still have enough battery power when the consumers need it? We have some secret sauce. I can't go into too much detail, but (laughs) one thing we make sure is that the primary purpose of an electric vehicle is to drive somebody around. And therefore, we make sure that when the driver will need the vehicle, it will be charged to the level that he expects it to be. That's the number one priority that we have into our algorithms. And we can do that while we are addressing some markets. But if we have to withdraw the vehicle from the market in order to make sure the vehicle is filled with energy, we will do that as well because that's our primary commitment is to make sure that the vehicle is charged when the driver needs it. I assume that a vehicle owner, they have an app and it says, my car needs to travel so many miles today, does it set a floor where it will at least have enough battery to get the person a certain distance? Yes, you talked about fleets. This is one of the good reasons to start with fleets also is because they usually have a schedule that is very well established. So that's one point. Then obviously the driver can input his own schedule. Now that would be the next level. The level after that is to do some forecasting based on historical data and establishing when the driver is using his vehicle. And then you can build even more complex forecasting devices connecting to your calendar on your phone in order to make sure that all circumstances are taken into account. The last piece of it is batteries. We are charging and discharging the battery and we are making sure that we are not voiding the warranty. In order to make sure we're not voiding the warranty, we have some limits in terms of the state of charge at which we can perform the services that we are performing. And so your battery is never fully discharged Then, when the state of charge becomes too low. While we are performing the service, we'll make sure that we are recharging the vehicle. Let's talk about economics, specifically Nuvi's business model. I can see it going a few ways. Are you selling equipment, software as a service, subscriptions? Are you brokering the electricity sent back to the grid? What exactly have you found to be 
the the business model that works best for your company? In Denmark today, we are doing basically energy as a service. Our customers are paying a very small flat fee for the cost of energy and the cost of the infrastructure. It's one of the more breakthrough model, right, where basically people are not paying for kilowatt hours anymore, but they are paying for a certain usage profile. In this case, it would be how many kilometers they are doing every year. So energy as a service, I'm convinced, is the way things will be in the future. And in many cases, we want to figure out what's the best way of doing energy as a service. Not the whole population might be interested in energy as a service just because they might not fully understand the model. And so we are looking at different options where we are also working with partners, depending on which country we are deploying the technology. In some cases, we might provide the technology, plus we'll be managing the connection to the grid, while maybe our partner is managing the relationship with the customers, the vehicle owners. The way I like to describe it is I think there are two extreme cases. One is you license the technology and you say, hey, just run with it. I don't want anything to do with it. Just send me some royalties every month. (laughs) That would be one. The other would be Nubi is going to do everything and buy the infrastructure, install the infrastructure, own it, own the customer, participate into the energy market. There's a lot of things that needs to be addressed. This is more of a broader question about how you feel about electric vehicles. Do you feel that there's anything stopping electric vehicles' progress? The only thing I can really think of at this point, you mentioned Norway, where you said that they're going to have to upgrade their transmission and distribution infrastructure. The only thing I can think of is the price, possibly shortages of lithium to make the batteries. I think in the short run, the penetration of electric vehicle could be slowed down if the distribution system is not capable of integrating those electric vehicles. And that would come across as increase in the cost of energy, potentially demand charge that would be applying to consumers. I'm looking more on the short run. I think lithium might be a problem in the future. I think we are pretty far away from that. The integration of EV in the short run is the biggest potential problem. You're an international company with projects on both sides of the Atlantic. How have these projects differed in the U.S. and Western Europe? In many ways. One is obviously the partners that we are working with. Car manufacturers are very local in terms of how they are dealing with the opportunities. For example, we've been working very closely with Nissan. The Nissan European team has been very aggressive in working with us. Utilities are also a little bit more advanced from the perspective of energy as a service and distributed energy sources and storage. We see the markets in Europe being quite a bit more open for our solution. In the U.S., you have the coast, California, PGM, where there are markets that are pretty well established. In the middle of the country, there are still a lot of places where you have vertically integrated utilities. And so you can't address them in the same way as you're addressing markets, for example, in Europe that are pretty deregulated. So from a regulation perspective, from a partnership, who are we working with and what is the business model that we are applying based on those different geographies is different from one place to another as well. Finally, you made a little bit of news last week. We're recording this on Monday, and just this past Friday, you announced the completion of a Series A funding round. What are your plans with this new infusion of capital? The primary purpose of this is to redevelop the business in Western Europe and North America. This is what we have promised our investors. They are giving us a lot of room in the way we can partner with many other companies, which is really great. The goal is to bring it through first fleet 
and then switching over to consumers. But our focus is going to be a lot on fleets over the next couple of years. The consumer developing the value propositions that consumer will feel attractive by 2020, 2021, when the number of electric vehicles is going to be drastically increasing in terms of models that people will be able to choose from. Well, that's fantastic. And congratulations. I know how hard that is to get to that level. And certainly it was a lot of work for your team to get to this point. My hat's off to you. It's a smooth and easy. <laughs> smooth and easy. Right, right, right. Of course it was. <laughs> Being sarcastic, by the way. Last part, we're going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. And this is my chance for the expert in one sector to give his opinions on the other parts of the energy sector, starting with natural gas. I think it's a great tool for baseline generation, very flexible and very cost effective and not too bad from a CO2 generation perspective as well. Crude oil. Over. <laughs> In your case, you hope so. Nuclear? In places like France or Sweden, this is their baseline generation, though it's expensive. Coal. Over. Wind. Still very early stage, but already so cost effective. Solar. Great for distributed generation. Biofuels. Question mark. I'm not clear where they will go. They require a lot of field to be generated, so it's, it's a question mark. Fuel cells. Basically, it's focused from governments and car manufacturers. If they bring their focus on it, it could take off. The infrastructure will be expensive also to implement them. Hydroelectric. Geographical. You need to be in the right place to be able to use hydro. And then geothermal. Same thing. It's very localized. Electric vehicles, you guys. Here to stay. <laughs> Energy efficiency. Important, but probably less and less important. And then finally, nuclear fusion. We'll see when it happens. We'll see when it happens. That's right. Gregory Pilon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for all your great questions. It's important that people understand that B2G is already here today. And the more we can communicate about it, the better it is. That was Dr. Gregory Pilon, chairman and CEO of Nuvi Corporation, a vehicle-to-grid company based in San Diego. Dr. Pilon says making the grid work ideally for V2G, residential solar, and all the great technologies that ask the grid to move in both directions won't be cheap. The European utilities E.ON and EDF recently published a paper saying that they expect that grid upgrades could cost about $250 billion over there. We're seeing these upgrades to our grid infrastructure around the world, and as the population Popularity and demand for these technologies grow, so will these grid efforts. And I found it incredible during the interview how Nuvi is finding innovative ways to predict how much range an electric vehicle should have. For instance, a calendar event on your smartphone could tell your car that it should plan for some extra mileage later that day. Incredible. Special thanks to Dr. Pilon and Lynn Ames at Nuvi for helping to set this interview up. All guests are sent the raw and completed show the week of release to ensure they are depicted accurately. So far, no complaints. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Be sure to check out pics of Nuvi's projects and more on Instagram at Host Energy and online at energy-cast.com. That wraps up episode 29. Be sure to join us next week when we explore another California company that is storing its energy in ice. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>